0: You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. In my first few months of pastoring, I decided I was going to preach on the topic of joy. At that time... 1208 was still two churches becoming one. And this brought with it some awkwardness and confusion because we all had to figure out who we were and what pieces of each church would continue on in our new dynamic of becoming one church. So needless to say, this made a bit of a strange atmosphere for a little bit. And I, I really wanted to kind of break the mood of the room, kind of give us a boost in spirit. So I discerned one day, I was like, what we really need is, is joy. And so I told a, a mentor of mine that I'd be preaching on joy the upcoming week. Uh, thinking over my reasoning, though, uh, he responded, what do you think joy is? <laughs> to which I got kind of nervous. I was like, oh, no, do I not know what joy is? And, and I, I didn't really know how to respond, and he never gave me an answer. So I then, you know, a long time later, decided it was time to find out for myself. So I read through Father James Martin's book, Between Heaven and Mirth, uh, in attempts to find a true understanding of what joy was, and and found that while joy is happiness, like I kind of thought it was, you know, like most of us think it is, it's actually much more than that, uh, too. So the Jesuit priest, Father James Martin, defines it this way. He says, in popular terminology, joy is happiness. For the religious person, joy is happiness in God. Joy is not simply a fleeting feeling or a evanescent emotion. It is a deep-seated result of one's connection to God. Although the more secular definition of joy may sometimes describe one's emotional response to an object or event, religious joy is always about a relationship. Joy has an object and that object is God. I wonder, have you experienced the joy of God before? I mean, we're familiar with joy in many other avenues, right? It's the time and thought you put into making someone a gift. It's it's watching a person open that gift. It's when your laugh changes to one rarely heard because something is beyond funny, Joel. It's it's when your cheeks hurt from laughing at a comedian for an hour and a half. It's, it's spending the holidays with your family. Some, sometimes. (laughs) It's eating and playing with your friends. It's being with old friends you haven't seen in years. It's belting out all the lyrics at a concert. It's cranking the music up in your car. It's sitting silently at a movie with your friends. It's taking part in a hobby. It's dancing like no one's watching. It's tasting combinations of food you didn't know could work together. It's being submerged in a good book, a movie, or video game. It's taking a walk through nature and being amazed by its beauty. It's that feeling you get when you're in love and you can't stop thinking about the other person. It's a nice date with that person. It's sitting in silence next to that person when the relationship goes deeper than words. It's hearing the words, I love you. It's the wedding where you're excited to start your new life with that person. It's holding that beautiful baby for the first time. It's your son's reaction when you ask if he wants to play a video game with you. It's your daughter's face when you hand her her favorite blanket. It's your kids and your pets celebrating you the moment you walk in the door. It's introducing your kids to things they've never done or seen before. So yeah, one way or another, you are familiar with joy because you found it in connection to people and even in connection to inanimate objects. And perhaps it's really that simple perhaps joy is anyone or anything that you love if so then you can find spiritual joy by loving those things in relation to god or in submission to god for example okay so Sometimes I get caught up in a song that I just find myself like I have to thank God for music. It might be a secular song, but the music is just so good that I find myself taking joy in God. You've made music. Even if this song is about you, maybe it's an instrumental song. But in that moment, it's just so complex and so beautiful. I'm like, God, you're just so good. When you're finding happiness in something... Many things that you find happiness in, you, you can take that and and thank God, and then your happiness moves on to a spiritual kind of joy. You can find it all throughout the spiritual life. It's it's found in your salvation story. It's in hearing others' testimonies. It's the mountaintop experience you had during that big event or retreat. It's learning to hear God's voice. It's actually hearing God's voice. It's a confirmation from elsewhere that you have, in fact, heard God's voice. There's joy in that. It's seeing someone healed. It's seeing an answer to prayer. It's seeing someone freed from a demon. It's waking up from a dream you know God gave you. It's watching Jesus disciple someone into a new place. It's realizing you're not the only one who struggles with the things you do. It's being freed of a struggle or addiction. It's sharing a new revelation that God gave you. It's feeling moved to kneel at the altar it's the smile on your face during worship it's your amazement at signs and wonders it's a biblical verse popping out in a way it never did before it's a deeper knowing of god's love it's a truer acceptance of god's grace it's seeing the fruit of your spiritual labors it's when you feel when you're stuck around uh, you, it's the way you feel when you're when you stick around after church to be with God's people and you just can't go home <laughs> it's provision when you didn't expect it it's a secret God gave you that's just for you It's the feeling of a calling on your life. It's watching an impossible vision come together. It's an experience with God you just can't put into words. It's the money that you received when you really needed it. It's the tears you cry when you're overwhelmed by him. All of this and more is happiness found in God, and that is spiritual joy. Peter exhorts the church when he says, though you have not seen him, you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls it's first Peter 1 8 through 9 Peter makes it clear to us that one of the marks of the early church was that they were filled with joy inexpressible joy where's the church marked by today is it joy (laughs) do people just go to church like these are the most joyful people I've ever met (laughs) you know it seems that when we think that uh, uh, we think that if we're gonna be good Christians we have to be as serious as possible sometimes if I make the right worship stank face while I'm 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 singing maybe I'm getting closer to God right the more serious and desperate I look the more present he is, yes. You know, try and tell him that to David, who's so overwhelmed with joy at the return of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, he just took off his clothes and danced around in his underwear, completely embarrassing his family. It—it's hard to be somber and serious and religious when you're dancing around in your underwear. The struggle to be serious and somber in relation to religion, that's not new though. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I mean, take Nehemiah's account of Israel, for example. Uh, during his time, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken Israel captive and put them in exile. So they were not in a great place. And then uh, he took them out of their homes and destroyed their cities, and after a time, gave Nehemiah permission to try and restore their old home. And after some time had passed and they had fixed some of their old home up, Israel gathered around to listen to their old laws be read in public. Something that they had done a few other times throughout history. As the words were read, Nehemiah says people began to cry. Oftentimes, we pastors, like when we look out and we see people crying, we're like, home run, we did it, you know? But Nehemiah saw a problem. Here's what he he says. This day is holy to the Lord. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. It's Nehemiah 8, 9-12. Now look, don't hear me wrong. It's typically okay to cry in a worship service. Uh... I once read a book that ticked me off when it implied otherwise. But at least in this particular case here, Nehemiah saw differently. Here's Israel standing in front of their rebuilt city for a holy celebration of sorts. And they're weeping. They're crying. What sounds to us like a holy moment in Nehemiah's case was the antithesis. It was the opposite. And so he corrects them. What are you doing? Don't cry. Let's eat drink be merry it's a holy day after all and the joy of the Lord is your strength but our expectation to find seriousness and sadness in the sacred has become so prevalent that we can't help but bend our service that direction we've taught that a good church puts on their Sunday best chants monotone expressions every once in a while and follows old traditions and sits quietly through service If you truly want to have a moment of holiness though, then joy should at least every once in a while, if not often, joy should be a part of it. After all, Isaiah told us that there was a highway called the way of holiness, where the ransomed of the Lord shall go with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 35:10 See the Christians addiction to seriousness it can be a problem we pastors we long to preach the most serious life changing message ever most of us usually wait for the uh, initial faster worship songs to end so we can actually start worshiping and i might be the most guilty person in the world when it comes to that <laughs> on top of that the only weddings you don't find dancing at are christian ones Uh, Not to mention many denominations that sometimes write doctrine against dancing. Our lack of joy makes us look so ridiculous sometimes. There's nothing more awkward for a worship leader than singing songs that command the church into action while everyone stands there with crossed arms, not even willing to clap along to the beat. (laughs) One church I attended always ended every service on a slow song keep the atmosphere serious and sacred it was miserable you always had to sneak out of the sanctuary so that you could talk in the tiny lobby because you would disturb the same five people inside every week who needed to stay somber at the altar every time you never really left that church feeling all that joyful because you always ended service by meditating on a sad slow song Look, when we finally meet God, I think one of the biggest things modern day Christians are going to be caught off guard by is his laughter, his joy. If, if you want to avoid that confusion and enjoy Christianity more while you're here on earth, then embrace the Holy Spirit's inexpressible joy. It isn't profane. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a sacred mark of the Christian. It's a part of what the resurrected body looks like. It seems to me that God is trying to get us to cheer up and laugh more you know one of the common ways in which his spirit has been moving in Pentecostal and charismatic circles is through holy laughter and I've witnessed this phenomena probably more than any other phenomena in the church one of my favorite stories of it comes from a friend of mine and they told me that uh, they were at a conference listening to a speaker when when laughter hit a few people in his group without warning and they couldn't hold it back very well and and then it just kept growing as soon as the ushers came to their section and tried to calm it down but it didn't it didn't work in fact the laughter was just starting to spread out to the people around them uh, fortunately the speaker and the ushers were familiar with this phenomenon cuz you can imagine how awkward it would have been <laughs> If they weren't but within time uh, the effects of this holy laughter had moved throughout the auditorium and the audience was laughing instead of listening to the speaker It's strange. I know of all the ways God could show up and touch us I find he often uses holy laughter as a familiar tactic. I don't fully get it. God Why didn't you heal that lady in the wheelchair right there? Shut up. Stop thinking laugh. This is something I care about there will be plenty of joy in heaven for joy is god's fruit after all have you ever imagined heaven that way or did you figure you would just sing serious worship songs for all eternity face it some of you did because that's all you've ever been shown when you go to church it seems that the only image of jesus that got pierced into our heads is of him hanging on the cross Therefore, whenever we think of him, we're left in in the dark moment of his death, rather than in the joy of his resurrection and life. That being said, let me tell you a few stories of our Savior to to help you catch a clearer picture of the joy that he must have been to be around. You know, it doesn't take long to come in contact with Jesus' joy. By the second chapter of John's Gospel, we see it attested to at a wedding. After running out of wine too early into the festivities, Jesus supernaturally fills up six stone water jars with 100 to 150 gallons of the wine uh, so that the party can continue on. He didn't cheap out either. Tradition at the time was to pull out the worst wine at the end since everyone was already... Pretty tipsy and not paying attention to taste anymore but Jesus pulled out wine that that was better tasting than anything they had already consumed up to that point see John's first sign of turning water into wine isn't the only time where we're given a picture of Jesus being a bit of a party animal he he himself said that people accused him of being a a glutton and a drunkard which is not an accusation you typically make of a very serious and somber person Uh, Both food and wine were a constant part of his ministry. Uh, So much so that Jesus decided to make wine and bread a, a sacred symbol of Christianity. Jesus came into the world nestled in a feeding trough and left it offering his disciples dinner. And now today, we are to remember him in eating and drinking. Yes, even our remembrance of him is to be something we joyfully do together. My point is this Jesus was super into food <laughs> I have two theories as to why this one is uh, one Jesus is used to feasting like crazy with his friends in heaven or two there's no food in spiritual heaven and Jesus couldn't get enough of it while he was here on the earth you know I I put my money on the former but still uh, it seems it, it seems to me that eating just seems to be the kingdom of heaven way it's the way Jesus did ministry Tim Chester points out that Jesus spent his time eating and drinking, a lot of his time. He, he was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Not sure, Jesus' ministry started with fasting, but throughout the rest of Luke's gospel, we see a lot of feasting. He had a great feast with a tax collector. His disciples were compared to John the Baptist in that John's fast, but Jesus's eat. The disciples ate grain from a field when they walked through it creating a whole stink with the local Pharisees that they weren't supposed to be eating at that time or shouldn't have been picking food on a Sabbath day Uh, he ate with a Pharisee he fed 5,000 people he sent 72 disciples into different towns and told them to eat with people he taught us the Lord's Prayer which literally teaches us to ask for food he dined at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees He was pointed out to have eaten with sinners he ate passover with the disciples and turned it into the lord's supper and he told the disciples they would eat with him again in his kingdom he broke bread with some disciples after his resurrection and he asked some of the disciples after the resurrection for some food i mean according to the gospel of luke as well as the other gospels but everything we just looked at was in luke when you wonder what jesus would do according to luke he eats <laughs> the son of man has come eating and drinking luke seven thirty four. so i suppose if we're wondering what jesus would do he'd eat food with people friends enemies and, and complete strangers doesn't matter who food is just how he does things that's why we do dinner church at 1208 Brett McCracken says, show hospitality, invite others to dine with you. Follow Jesus' example, share food with strangers, throw long dinner parties. It's a bit of a bizarre concept to a world that spends most of its time engaging the community via the internet. Get to know a neighbor, invite someone over for food, talk to someone in person. (laughs) Yeah, do it and do it up. Have a good time. Nobody wants to go to a joyless feast though, so enjoy it. Trust me, I've gone to joyless feasts plenty of time. (laughs) I I remember having a good time at a potluck once when I was young and and someone pulled out their Bible and started preaching and crying, effectively sucking the joy out of the meal. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to stop eating in the middle of the meal because suddenly they were crying, or if I just kept, Eating while they cried. I, I didn't know what the proper reaction was. Eating in celebration with others has been a habit, dating all the way back to Leviticus 23, when several religious feasts were put into motion. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, We started the Bible off early with eating and we'll be doing it all the way to the end when we partake in a marriage supper between Jesus and the church It's biblically clear that eating and partying is just a a, a Judeo-Christian value. It's It's a part of 1208 We take after Jesus's model Many churches if not most would consider the simple act of eating and talking as an unspiritual moment But that's where I get fed every week, spiritually and physically. For nine years now, we've left our doors open each week to anyone who wants to come hang out and eat and play games. And it's been hugely beneficial to my family, which any of you are welcome anytime, by the way, Thursdays at six, usually ends around eight, but we're usually just around till we're around for several years now. Uh, We don't have a lot of spiritual things planned. We're just playing games and eating food and hanging out and and these relationships and conversations and jokes that happen those days they They give us something to look forward to they give us friends to do life and faith together And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said uh, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer i've learned what those words mean see without these people who like to just stop by and hang out if i didn't have that in my life our family would have little to keep our spirits up you know sometimes family life can can often focus so inward on itself that it ends up having no relational support Uh, the married life with kids can become inward focused to the point that that it just can dry up or implode on itself. And so when you bring others in to add elements of love and friendship and joy uh, beyond what only a few in your family can maintain on a day-to-day basis, it frees you up for Christian relational joy. So I consider these times of friendship to be pure joy what is it that I'm experiencing in those moments though it's not just joy but sacrament author Rachel held Evans helped me figure that one out she said when we put a kingdom spin on ordinary things water wine leadership marriage friendship feasting sickness forgiveness we see that they can be holy they can point us to something greater than ourselves A fantastic mystery that brings meaning to everything we make something sacramental when we make it like the kingdom see for me eating with my friends is kingdom laughing and playing and hearing their stories brings me joy and this time with them isn't just sacrament but it's intimacy too as Jim Gaffigan points out he says sitting and eating a meal with someone is intimate I try to eat as many meals as I can with my kids Sure, I try to eat as many meals as I can in general, but eating with children is important. There we are together, eating and talking, spilling and throwing food. Sometimes my kids misbehave too. It's a great time to force myself away from all the other distractions in my life and sit around a table sharing an experience with my family. Even baby Patrick in his high chair knows it's important. He laughs along and babbles in agreement. He is in the mix. The entire family is participating in something together. Jeannie and I try to teach manners and civilize these little monsters but anyone with young children knows it's never a relaxing experience it's just good to eat together it's a unique time you can share with your family and it's been going on for thousands of years so you can consider eating and drinking with others to be as neutral a territory as you want but it seems to have been key to Jesus's ministry It was how God in flesh often conversed with strangers and spent time with others. Uh, N.T. Wright points out that most writers now agree that eating with sinners was one of the most characteristic and striking marks of Jesus' regular activities. And he must have been a pretty good host because it's not every day that holy people pull off having a meal with sinners. So embrace food, embrace dinner church, embrace joy. For even Solomon in all of his wisdom said, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. It's Ecclesiastes 8.15. Joy is a beautiful thing to witness and it's important for the church to be marked by it. The world has seen us as more of a curmudgeon than a partier and... This hasn't played so well to our witness at times. You know, happiness in God is the real deal, and and that's what joy truly is. We try to find that joy in all kinds of other things, some good, some bad. But regardless of their moral standing, these things never compare with the joy found in God. There are many joys in my life, but how many of them are there because I find happiness for God in them? How many of the joys in my life are just lesser things that I'm finding false happiness in when God is asking me to come to Him and receive real joy? How many of those things are just mere substitutes that will never bring the same kind of fullness? If we want to find joy, we need to simply turn our attention to God and embrace the happiness we find there. He's not always serious, for He is a father, and a good father knows how to play with His children. A good father loves to tickle his kids just to see them laugh. He, he loves to bless us with gifts and spend intimate time with us. He loves to let us climb up on his lap and lean into his chest. He loves to sit there in silence and simply enjoy the very presence of us. He loves to throw parties to celebrate us. He takes us on extravagant trips just to entertain us and introduce us to new things. Fathers hate to see their children sad and depressed. They, they long to break through our drama and bring us happiness and joy. They want to see us smile for no other reason than to see us smile. And these are just conclusions we can reach because of how our earthly fathers are. Just imagine how much better our Heavenly Father is. This is the extravagant joy that God has for us. Soak it in and then let it squeeze out of you on others.